0: in the red word, and so I'm going to read uh, John chapter 12, verse 27 to 30. If you're visiting with us, we work our way through books of the Bible, and so we find ourselves in the middle of John chapter uh, the gospel of John right right in the middle in chapter 12 here kind of the heart of the gospel of John John chapter 12 verse 27 Jesus says my soul has become troubled and what shall I say father save me from this hour but for this purpose I came to this hour father glorify your name then a voice came out of heaven I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, the voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. This is God's holy word. Let's pray and ask Him for help. Lord God Almighty, we come before You this morning. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God stands forever. Your Word is timeless, relevant, as relevant as if the ink off of the pen of the Apostle Paul was still drying. Man's problems have not changed. The solution in the Gospel of the death and resurrection of our Lord has not changed. You have not changed. And so, Lord, here we stand. We need to hear from Your most relevant Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Have you ever had something on the horizon, a decision to be made, something you had to do that you knew you must do it, it was right to do it, but you also knew it's a very difficult decision, that there will be hardship involved in it. Maybe for some of you who go to the gym, it's leg day. <laughs> for others, it might be a difficult conversation to have with a coworker. For some, in leadership at work, it might even be letting somebody go, firing somebody. For others, it could be some hard decision that has to be made, that you know it needs to be made, but there's a measure of reluctance. Well, that's something of the situation of the Lord Jesus that He finds Himself in as John records it in John chapter 7. This is now less than a week out from the crucifixion of our Lord where He will die a public, agonizing death upon the cross. He calls this moment His hour. His hour of glory as we saw last week. And John is writing, he's writing the Gospel of John as a kind of a propaganda document sometimes we use the word propaganda in a bad kind of way oh that's propaganda Uh, you mean it's something trying to convince you of something Um, that's bad well, uh, propaganda is not necessarily a bad thing. It's writing in a persuasive kind of way. Well, John is writing to persuade you. He tells us at the end of the Gospel of John that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you would have life in His name. He wants you to believe in Jesus. And one of the core things about Jesus and who He is is why he came here? What was his purpose? And and, and fewer and John chapter 12 gives us a wonderful window into Jesus' own self-understanding of the cross work. What he would do in dying upon the cross. And we began to see this last week. And it comes in the context of a conversation... In verse 20, that begins with these Greeks coming to Jesus. Uh, They're worshiping at the feast. These are God-fears, and they they want to interview Jesus. And so they find Philip, uh, which, as as I mentioned last week, Philip and Andrew were the only ones with Greek names. They come to Philip and tug upon his tunic and uh, and ask him, uh, they say at the end of verse 21, "'Sir, we would wish to see Jesus.'" we want to see Jesus now the assumption is that they didn't you know just want selfies with Jesus or an autograph from Jesus they they wanted to talk with him there was many different opinions floating around about Jesus and so uh, Philip gets Andrew and they evidently bring these Greeks to Jesus and Jesus immediately signals once he sees these gentiles these non-Jewish people in front of him he signals that his hour had come in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And, and throughout the Gospel of John, it's almost like there's a clock that's rolling around. And, and, and periodically, Jesus will say, no, it's not my hour. No, it's not my hour. They come to arrest Him. They're trying to have Him killed, but no, it's not His hour. But now, finally, as he's, this is now uh, uh, the Sunday before the Friday execution, Jesus now says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24, Jesus then explains that unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. It's very clear, Jesus now uses this analogy to speak of His future death as as a seed going into the ground and dying. A seed must go into the ground and die to produce fruit. And so he's speaking of this as his crossword. He must die. If he's going to produce fruit, he must die. And then, the following verse, he highlights those who are his followers must also die, in a sense. In verse 25, he says, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who loses his life in this world uh, will keep it to eternal life. The person who is is willing to hate his life in the sense of give up his life for the cause of Christ and following Jesus is the one who finds life. And then Jesus talks about this promise of those who will follow Him in this service that He and His Father will honor them. And then verse 27, this is where we pick it up. Jesus, now evidently still, the Greeks are still there, the disciples are still there, Jesus is still talking, He's just mentioned his hour. Now he says in verse 27, "Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? "Father, save me from this hour?" This whole section focuses in on Jesus' thinking about the cross and and we began to look last time about different truths we learned about the glory of the cross and we're going to learn three more truths of the glory of cross of the cross and the first of these is the aversion of the cross the aversion of the cross notice Jesus's if you will hesitation his anguish his heartache notice what the text says now my soul has become troubled and and, and then he says this is his temptation Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? It's almost like Jesus presenting to us, My soul is troubled, and and I could ask the Father to deliver me from this hour, namely the crucifixion that He's about to endure. Great trouble of soul. Now, the, the word that Jesus uses here to describe His troubled soul, it's a very graphic word. In fact, uh, it's used in the Gospel of John earlier on in chapter 10. You remember the man who was by the pool of Siloam and and the waters would get stirred up and and he was an invalid for 37 years or so and he, he needed somebody to put him in the water when the waters were stirred up or troubled. Okay, That's the same word here that Jesus uses when He says, my soul is troubled, to be stirred up. Jesus is saying here, in His very real humanity, and this is what you need to understand, as much as the Gospel of John upholds Jesus as God of very God, that's how it starts, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Gospel of John also is not ashamed to present Jesus in His very real stark humanity. That He had a human soul, just like you and I, although without sin. And in His human soul, in His human inner man, He was troubled like troubled waters. He was in internal anguish and turmoil. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that John does not record Jesus' anguish that comes several days later, namely in the Garden of Gethsemane. The other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record Jesus in Gethsemane in tremendous agony of soul crying out, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. John doesn't record that. But he does record, in a sense, this kind of mini-Gethsemane, if you will, that evidently happens on the Sunday before the, the, the Friday morning of Gethsemane. In other words, this was something that Jesus was thinking about. As He was headed to the cross, he, he 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 went to Jerusalem to go to the cross. He says that repeatedly throughout, throughout the Gospels that this was what He came for. But as the cross is on the immediate horizon, He reveals to His disciples and to the Greeks who are surrounding Him that His soul is in great trouble. Now, why would that be? Was Jesus in anguish over the reality of the physical sufferings that he would was about to endure. We certainly couldn't fault him for that, right? I mean, you know, just to be publicly whipped, you know, the way in which Roman soldiers would... Whip people that their whips usually had pieces of metal and glass, and and it just just tore up the back, and then to have nails driven into your hands, and and to be executed in a long agonizing death. I, I mean, today we, you know, some people consider it cruel and unusual punishment if you know if if a nurse can't find a vein before the lethal injection. I mean. The Romans knew how to do the job. I mean, Jesus, Louise, publicly dying in agonizing death. I mean, we could hardly fault it. But yet, at the same time, I mean, many, even a pagan, would go to their physical death with, with, with resoluteness of heart, with calmness of spirit. Socrates calmly drank the hemlock, which leads me to think that there's far more here that Jesus is in anguish about than the mere physical sufferings. Because there's so much more than meets the eye than the mere physical sufferings that Jesus was about to undergo. Namely, He was going to bear the wrath of the Father. He was going to take the punishment of hell on behalf of sinners as He hung suspended between heaven and earth. That this One who existed in His divine nature, in an eternal love relationship with the Father, and even in His human nature, as He was born for for 33 and a half years, lived in perfect communion and fellowship with the Father, now, in some cosmic kind of way, was going to be treated as a sinner on the cross. In some cosmic way, He was going to cry out the screams of the damned, namely, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This one who could heal diseases by a touch, this one who could raise the dead by speaking a word, this one who could calm A storm on the Sea of Galilee by rebuking the winds and the waves. He was about to undergo the full fury of hell for three hours on the cross. And he shuddered at that reality. His soul was troubled. One person says J.C. Ryle says, To say, as some do, that the only cause of our Lord's trouble was the prospect of His own painful death on the cross is a very unsatisfactory explanation. At this rate, it might justly be said that many a martyr has shown more calmness and more courage than the Son of God. But such a conclusion is, to say the least, most revolting. Yet this is the conclusion to which men are driven if they adopt the modern notion that Christ's death was only an example of self-sacrifice. Nothing can ever explain our Lord's trouble of soul, both here and in Gethsemane, Friday morning, except the old doctrine that He felt the burden of man's sin pressing down upon Him. He was about in the spiritual realities of what he was going to undergo upon the cross, was going to be treated as if he committed the sin of every sinner who would ever believe on the cross. Again, similarly, Arthur Pink says his heart was suffering torture, horror, grief, dejection, all are, are all included in the word troubled. And what occasioned this? The insults and sufferings which he was to receive by the hands of men, the wounding of his heel by the serpent? No, indeed, it was the prospect of being made a curse for us, of suffering the righteous wrath of a sin-hating God. That's why his soul was troubled. And it ought to have been troubled. It ought to have been troubled. The thought of, again, somehow, in the mystery of the Godhead of being forsaken by the Father, caused him to have a troubled soul. Now this troubled soul of Jesus should give us a measure of peace. Because it gives us a window into the reality that He was about to suffer the wrath of Almighty God. In other words, He was troubled so that you could have peace. He was troubled over the reality of enduring hell upon the cross so that you would not have to fear and dread the reality of hell. This is truly the warrant for Christian peace. Jesus was troubled of soul so that we could have peace. And friends, I know that there are some of you who struggle with having assurance of salvation, having peace, knowing that you are in the Lord and safe in His hands. And I want to commend you to think about the reality of Jesus' anguish here, that He was disturbed. In a sense, He lacked peace so that you could have peace. Some years ago, we were invited to a family wedding in Lake Tahoe. And uh, we'd never been to Lake Tahoe before. It's evidently a lake on top of mountains. Beautiful, beautiful area. And people kept warning us about the snow in Lake Tahoe. And you know, I'm from Youngstown, Ohio. And I know about snow in the yo. I've been driving since I was age 16. I even drove through a blizzard to visit my brother at Case Western when I was 16 years old. Snow, I thought. Cocky. Well, I may know about snow in the yo, but I don't know about snow in Lake Tahoe. Okay? <laughs> it's one thing to have snow and you're driving in flat Ohio, it's another thing to be on the, on the side of a mountain where, you know, to your right is like a thousand foot drop-off and to your left is a big snow pile, okay? <clears throat> well, needless to say, <clears throat> my pride led to <laughs> some difficult circumstances in Lake Tahoe. As we were leaving... Uh, There was avalanches. I I mean, I've only heard about avalanches, but avalanches on the road that just smother the road. You know, we were blocked in. We had an avalanche to the east. We had an avalanche to the west and nowhere to go. And at one point, our car got stuck in a drift on the side of the road. And you know, I'm looking at how much gas we have left. We got three children sitting in the back. I'm outside the car with my hands scraping snow out from underneath the car trying to get the car unstuck. And there's my three children in the back. I think they were watching a movie on a little DVD at the time. Dad, can we go and make a snowman now? (laughs) Perfect peace. Perfect tranquility. Having no idea the utter peril that we were in. And, that, and you think, what a picture. That's the peace that we can have because Jesus' troubled labors for us upon the cross, because the anguish of His soul and the reality that He was about to swallow, that in the language of Gethsemane, He was about to drink the cup of the full wrath of God the Almighty, we can sit in the back of the seat of the car and say, when can we make snowmen? Because our soul is safe in Jesus. Jesus. He has experienced the full throttle of hell so that we would not have to. Friends, that is the promise of the gospel. This is the promise that he says in John chapter 5 and verse 24 that that if anyone believes, he will not experience condemnation, but he has passed from death to life. He doesn't have to fear being condemned before the Lord. This is the promise of Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, where it says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No fear of hell. No dread of the reality of God's frown upon them for all eternity. Why? Because Jesus bore the wrath. But there may be some of you sitting here this morning, and you've not yet hid yourself in Jesus. You should be troubled in soul. You should have great anguish over the reality that if your heart stopped beating at any moment, you would be ushered into a place of torment, awaiting the judgment at the resurrection, only to be sentenced to an eternity in the lake of fire that the lake of brim, uh, the lake of fire that burns with brimstone forever and ever. You should have a troubled soul. I think some of the numbers for anxiety disorders in the United States are like 25 to 30%. It should be up to 90%. All should be doped out on psychotropics over the reality of hell. But of course, sadly and tragically, that's not the concern of most of the unbelieving world. Friend, do you realize you deserve an eternity in hell? You deserve to be the object of God's eternal, just, righteous indignation forever and ever because of your offenses against the holy God. And you may try to delude yourself and think, well, uh, you know, I'm really not that bad of a person. But God sees all that you've done. You may think, well, I'm not as bad as some people. God doesn't grade on a curve. But, I have good news for you. Jesus was troubled in soul as He anticipated the reality of being punished on behalf of sinners upon the cross so that if you trust in Him, if you turn from your own rebellion, trust solely in Him as your only hope, you don't have to be troubled in soul. You can know... And have the joy of being pardoned in Him. He was troubled in soul so that you might not have to be. That's the anguish of the cross. But secondly, the aim of the cross. Notice the second part of verse 27. As He Ponders this temptation to save, to to talk to the Father and say, Father, save me from this hour. Jesus responds to this temptation with a resolute, for this, but for this purpose I came to this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Blessed be God that Jesus did not succumb to the temptation, but with resoluteness of heart sought to obey the Father and to walk to the cross and to willingly put His hands upon that Roman cross so that they could drive the nails into His hands and into His feet so that He would indeed bear the full fury of the Father's wrath. He says, but for this purpose. It's almost as if he mentally reminds himself, this is my mission. This is what I came for. This is what I'm supposed to do. And we see this throughout the Scriptures, right? I mean, when Jesus was in utero, this was His purpose, right? Right? It was His purpose, of course, even before that, for me, eternity past. But, But even as it's revealed to us in the Gospel accounts, the angel Gabriel tells Joseph, You shall name Him Jesus. Why? For He shall save His people from their sins. Built into the very name of Jesus, Yeshua, means Yahweh saves, and He would be called this because His life mission was a rescue operation at the center of which was Him dying and rising from the dead. We see it even in the Gospel of John, at the very beginning place of Jesus' ministry in chapter 1. As John the Baptist is there, and he sees Jesus off in a distance, you remember what John says? John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He points to Jesus and calls Him the Lamb of God. What is that speaking of? It's speaking of the One who is the sacrificial Lamb of the Passover feast that would be slaughtered and blood would be put on the doorpost so that the wrath of God would pass over every Jewish household who believed and trusted. And so John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. This is the Lamb. Well, where would the Lamb become that sacrifice? Jesus would become that sacrifice upon the cross. We see it even in John chapter 2. Remember when Jesus is uh, talking at the, the, uh, the feast, the Passover feast, one of His first visits recorded in the Gospels to the Passover feast, and, and Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And John records that Jesus was speaking of the temple of His body. So He's referring to His body as a temple. Well, what is a temple? It's a place where people would meet with God, but it is also especially a place of bloody sacrifice. Bloody sacrifice. Jesus implied in describing Himself as the temple is saying, I'm the place where you meet with God through blood. We see in chapter 3, the famous conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus in those famous verses in 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. This giving of the Son, it comes in the cross. Chapter 6, Jesus would say repeatedly that He is the bread that came down from heaven, that He gives His flesh as life for the world. We can go on and on, right? You know, John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd, the good shepherd, what? Lays down His life for the sheep. So here Jesus is at a crossroads where He's being tempted and He's saying, Father, should I say, Father, save me from this hour? He says, no! For this purpose I came for this hour. This is my mission. This is what I came for. This is the heart of what I came to do. So friends, this this highlights to us the glorious and beautiful love that is in Jesus. You see, because Jesus, in His going to the cross he was going fully cognizant that he was entering the storm of the Father's wrath. It wasn't like he was caught off guard, that this was a flippant decision. No, he walked into this fully aware of what he was about to endure and he still chose the nails. Long ago and far, far away, I used to be a nurse. (laughs) And one of the things, uh, as a nurse, an important principle in any kind of procedure that you're explaining to the patient or prospective patient, you, you have to make sure they understand the procedure, they understand the risks involved, and you try to attain what's called their informed Consent informed, meaning they know the risks, they know the procedure, they know what they're getting into, and they consent. They agree, I'm willing to take the risk because of this because I believe the benefits are greater than the potential risks. Jesus had informed consent. He knew full well what he was getting into. And He chose to die for you. He chose knowing what He would encounter. Knowing the wrath of the Father that He would undergo. He chose to lay down His life for you. Certainly this highlights his great love. His love for rebels like you and I, who fail him miserably over and over, who don't love him as we ought to, who often, all too often find ourselves loving our comforts, loving our reputation, loving control, loving lots of things, but having a weak love for Jesus. But yet His love covers over that because He resolved for this purpose, I came. And by the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus is there accomplishing His mission. Dying on behalf of rebels. And friends, can I suggest something? If the cross was central to the mission purpose of Jesus, then it ought to be central in our lives. It ought to flavor every part of our lives. The reality that Jesus died for me. The reality that Jesus bore my hell, Jesus took my punishment, it should flavor everything. The taste of the gospel should permeate all of our lives. We say, what do you- you know, that sounds nice and flowery, Matt, but what do you mean by that? Well, I, I think when when you read the New Testament, it becomes evident what, what I mean by that, because all these different um Imperatives, commands, how we're supposed to live our lives are rooted and anchored and motivated by the reality of what Jesus has done for us. For example, the Apostle Paul speaks to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. In other words, the flavor of Jesus' death for you should motivate you to love your wife in a sacrificially loving kind of way. Or how about this? It should flavor your relationships in pursuing reconciliation with one another in the body of Christ. How so? Ephesians 4.31-32 Therefore let all bitterness wrath, anger, clamor, and all malice be put away from you. And then he says, "Positively be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, why? Because God in Christ has forgiven you." It should flavor the way we re- relate to one another. In loving relationships, as the Apostle Paul says later on in Ephesians 5.1, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. How? How? As Christ loved you and gave Himself for you as a fragrant offering to God. Love one another in light of Jesus' death for you. Forgive one another in light of Jesus' death. How about this one? Be generous towards one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. He who was rich became poor so that we who were in poverty might become rich. And that's all in the context of giving, if you look at 2 Corinthians 7, 8, 9. Now, I understand that the prosperity preachers may abuse and and molest and corrupt that verse, but you get it, right? We're the poverty ones. He's the rich one. He became poor in his incarnation and his death and resurrection, so that we might be filthy rich in him. And then Paul says, Open your hands. Don't be stingy. You're rich in Christ. This ought, the cross, ought to be the center. It was the center of Jesus' life. It ought to be the center of our life. It ought to be the centerpiece of the church and ministry. It's so easy. (laughs) To get caught up in every evangelical fad that exists. I mean, if you really want a lesson in evangelical fads, I'll tell you what to do. You go once a year, the third, second or third week in April, go to Westminster Presbyterian Church over in Boardman. There's a used book sale. And go to their religion section and look at, at all the, the, the used Christian books over the past 50 years, and you'll just chuckle. You'll see the prayer of Jabez, you'll see the 40, 40 days of purpose, purpose-driven life, you'll see yeah, you'll see it all. And you'll just chuckle, you say, oh, I remember when that was that was popular. And, and each of these come along as these are the savior for the church. You know, we need to get on board with this. How about we stick with the cross? I'm not saying none of those things have some help or purpose, whatever, but. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Even sometimes when it comes to important peripheral doctrines, we can can make those the central thing, the central message, and get off track with that. D.A. Carson in his helpful book, The Cross and the Christian Ministry, says, Western evangelicalism tends to run through cycles of fads. Amen and amen. At the moment, books are pouring off the presses telling us how to plan for success, how vision consists of clearly articulating ministry goals, how the knowledge of detailed profiles of our communities constitute the keys to successful outreach. I'm not for a moment suggesting that there's nothing to be learned from such studies, but after a while, one may perhaps be excused for marveling how many churches were planted by Paul or by George Whitfield, or the Wesleys, or Stanway, and Judson, without enjoying any of these advantages. Of course, all of us need to understand the people to whom we minister, and all of us can benefit from the small doses of such literature. But massive doses, sooner or later, dilute the gospel. Ever so subtly, we start to think that success more critically depends upon thoughtful sociological analysis than on the gospel. Barna becomes more important than the Bible. We depend upon plans, programs, vision statements. But somewhere along the way, we've succumbed to the temptation to displace the foolishness of the cross with the wisdom of strategic planning. Again, I insist, my position is not merely is not a thinly veiled plea for obscure obscurantism for seat-of-the-pants ministry that plans nothing. Rather, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. And then he says this, whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center... We are not far removed from idolatry. Whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far from idolatry. Yes and amen. Friends, we must keep the cross central. It was the mission of Jesus' life, it ought to permeate our lives, it ought to be the centerpiece jewel of the Christian faith that we guard with our lives. Friend, how are you doing at living a cross-centered life? A life motivated and permeated by the aroma that Jesus died for you. Have you become somehow apathetic, indifferent, yawning over the reality that Jesus bore the full wrath of the Father so that you could be accepted before Him. Friend, don't ever get there. And when you get there, know something's wrong. Don't be content with that state. Stoke the fires. Pull out the bellows upon the fires of your heart to stoke them with the reality Jesus died for me. It's something the Apostle Paul who who walked with the Lord for many years, he seemed to never get... Accustomed to. He says in 1 Timothy 1.15, here's a trustworthy statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am chief. It wasn't a cold, crusty doctrine that Paul just checked off the box. Yeah, I believe in the substitutionary atonement. No, it's what warmed his heart every day. And they're not to warm our hearts, They not to motivate us. This is the aversion of the cross, Jesus' anguish, the aim of the cross. For this very purpose, Jesus says, "I came for this hour." And then notice verse 28. "Father, glorify your name." Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now, don't disconnect this verse with what Jesus has said previously. Jesus has said... For this purpose I came for this hour, in verse 27, and now on the heels of this statement, Jesus cries out, Father, glorify Your name. In other words, we must connect the dots between Jesus' resolve to go to the cross and His aspiration, desire, that the Father would be glorified. In some ways, it's quite basic. We ask our children, how can you glorify God? How? By loving Him and obeying Him. How does Jesus glorify God? By loving Him and obeying Him. That Jesus' death on the cross was first and foremost for God. Yes, it is gloriously wonderful He died for me, He paid the price for my sin. But the primary motivation for the cross and Jesus' resolved walk there was not you, but it was the Father. Jesus' resolved and choosing the nails and saying, for this purpose I came for this hour, is not him looking down the corridors of time and saying, look how cute and cuddly they are. What a sweet bunch of people. No, 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 no. <laughs> he saw your fangs before you were born. And yet, what motivated him was the glory of the Father. An eternal love relationship that existed before this world was created, before this world was corrupted. That He would resolve to take that death march to the cross out of love For the Father and His glory, because it is there that the world would know just how loving the Father is. That the world would know just how serious God is about sin. That the world would know just how just God is. That the world would know how infinitely wise God is. That the Father would be magnified. The spotlight would be upon Him in His perfect saving work upon the cross. I didn't get that. Would you try again? Siri's talking to me. She needs to close her mouth. <laughs> Jesus' resolve is that the Father would be glorified. And notice if we drop back down to verse 28 I'm sorry back down to verse 23 the same discourse Jesus says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified and and we we understand that that the father glorified the son the son is passionate about the glory of the father now you may be reading this and, and starting to feel bad for the holy spirit why is he not included For that, you have to fast forward to John chapter 16 and verse 13 and 14 where it says, when Jesus says, and when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and disclose it to you. So, the Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit is involved in glorifying the Son. There's this beautiful intra-Trinitarian glorification going on here where each person of the Trinity is shedding the spotlight upon the others. What a beautiful thing. We see Jesus was glorified. Or God was glorified in the birth of Jesus. Remember? Remember? We sing it around Christmas time. Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy. A Savior has been born in Bethlehem. He is Christ the Lord. And then there was a great company of angels saying, Glory to God in the highest. God was glorified. In the birth of Jesus, God was glorified in the life of Jesus as Jesus went around doing miracles, as Jesus perfectly obeyed His Father from the womb to the tomb. He glorified the Father with His entire life. And then in a gloriously climactic way, in His death and resurrection, He glorified the Father. Did Jesus die for you? Yes. Did He die for me? Yes. But perhaps most importantly, He died for God. But then there's people there, and this is why I'm calling this the attestation of the cross. The people stood by, heard it, and were saying... It had thundered. Others are saying an angel has spoken to Him. So this voice from the Father, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. I think what he's saying is, is that the Father's name was glorified through the life of Jesus. Oh, but He will glorify it in the cross right now. Just a couple days from now. He will glorify it. But there's people there, Right? And this is actually the Father talking to Jesus. And as far as I know, there's only three occasions in the Gospel accounts where the Father is speaking from heaven. Bible tribute. Can you name them? You have the baptism of Jesus, right? Where the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes and descends upon Jesus and the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You also see at the transfiguration where, again, the Father says, this is My beloved Son, whom I am well pleased, listen to Him. And as far as I know, this is the third occasion here. Where there's a voice from heaven. It's interesting that the people there, they describe it as, maybe it's an angel, or it sounds like thunder, right? And, And that should, I think perk up our ears and make us think, well, isn't there another time in the Bible that speaks of God speaking in the sound of thunder? And there is. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 19. At great Sinai, as Moses, the mediator of the covenant, is there and the people of God are there. It says, when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. With thunder. And so it would seem, fast forward now, thousands of years later, now Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, is interacting with God and about to go, not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Calvary. Now here, the voice of God speaks to the mediator of the new covenant in thunder. And evidently the people don't speak thunder. (laughs) So they're not quite certain what's being communicated, only that it sounds like thunder. But all this, Jesus tells them, again, this is a tremendous attestation of a tremendous event in redemptive history. I mean, do you think Mount Sinai was a pretty big deal for the Jewish people? Pretty important? You know, you want to mark that one on the calendar, remember it every year? Yes! And Jesus is saying, something just as important is taking place here. God is speaking through thunder. A new covenant is about to be cut. A new covenant is about to be instituted. It will also be instituted with blood as previous covenants. And the people are there, and Jesus says in verse thirty, and the voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Jesus saying it, you know, I speak thunder. I understand him. You know, we got this open line of communication, but but he spoke thunder out loud for your sake, so that you would know so that you would mark your calendar, so that you would know that this here is a culmination of redemptive history in such a cosmic way that you will know its significance. And friends, we don't hear God speaking in thunder today. But while the people there, they had the privilege of thunder noise, but they didn't have the privilege of The New Testament. We don't have the privilege of thunder, but we do have the privilege of the New Testament. God speaks to us in His Word. He speaks to us of the glory of Christ and the significance of the events of the cross and how primary and important it is in the mission and life of Jesus and how primary and important it is to be in our own lives He attests to it over and over. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is the grand theme of Scripture. Right now I've been working my way through the book of Genesis and from the earliest pages of Genesis, God promises that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And all along, this theme of seed runs throughout the book of Genesis and everybody's wondering, who's, who's the, is, has that seed come? And Noah comes along and you're wondering, is this Noah? No, it's not Noah. And you're coming along, is it Abraham? Oh, well, No, it's not Abraham. Is it Isaac? Well, kind of, not really. It's not Isaac. Is it is it one of Isaac's sons? Jacob? Yes, maybe Jacob. Not quite. And you keep waiting for the seed. And by the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob makes Judah his firstborn and declares to him that the scepter would not from Judah until Shiloh comes. And, it, and, and the theme the story just keeps going runs throughout the whole of the Old Testament, runs throughout the New Testament from Genesis to, from, from, from the first 39 books it's the promise of the coming seed, the promise of the coming Messiah. In the last half, the last 27 books is the recording of he's come. In the anticipation of his second coming, God gave that for your benefit. He didn't do it for himself. He knows who he is. He wants you to know who he is. So we see three more glories of the cross the anguish, he was troubled in soul. We see also the aim of the cross. He says, for this purpose I came. It's His mission. The attestation of the cross, the Father speaks from heaven, says He has glorified it, He will glorify it, that this is part of the plan. We close with the story of a young boy who built himself a little sailboat. He spent many hours building the sailboat and then finally he wanted to launch the sailboat out on the lake. And so he brought his sailboat to the lake and was playing with it in the lake. And the currents of the lake began to take his sailboat off. And the waters were too deep and he couldn't swim in these deep waters. And he just watched his sailboat sail away. Well, a couple weeks passed and he was in a local pawn shop and wouldn't you know, there's his sailboat. And the sailboat had a pretty hefty price tag on it. And uh, so the boy said, well, I want my sailboat back. And so he spent many weeks working odd jobs, saving up money. And finally the day came where he went to the pawn shop and he bought his sailboat. And then he said after it, now you are twice mine. Once because I made you. Twice because I bought you. Jesus made you. John says nothing was made, but he is not made. We were ruined in the fall, but Jesus chose at a very costly price, to buy us back. May we live in such a way that that reality flavors our whole lives. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You for Your perfect plan. We thank You for Jesus. Jesus, We thank You for resolving to go to the cross despite the anguish, despite experiencing the horrors of hell so that we might not have to experience them. Oh Lord, our lives are no adequate payment back. We could never pay You back for such... In fact, it would be an insult to do so. And so, Lord, we simply believe. And with gratitude of heart, we hand off to a heart inflamed with love to live lives that seek to honor You. In Jesus' name, Amen.